If we did not address the issue of personal violence, gender violence, sexual violence, of that it would never be possible to imagine a world without prisons. Uh, I learned more from writing this book than uh, from any other publication that I've done. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. Wonderful. Hello, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to Making the Abolition Feminism Band, um, (laughs) where the audience will be invited to progressively vote people off the panel if you don't like something they say. (laughs) Only I am unable to be voted off. Um, But since we're, you know, kind of in the midst of a supposed cancel culture panic, this seems to be an appropriate way to spend a Friday afternoon or evening, depending on where you are. Um, But I just wanted to say that I'm really, truly honored and so happy to be part of celebrating this timely and useful book, Abolition Feminism Now. So much of what I know about abolition and about feminism, I've learned from each of the four authors of this book. Um, The opportunity to be in conversation with you all is really, truly a highlight. So I'm thrilled about that. Um, I think that the audience will appreciate if we forego introductions of you as panelists. Um, And, uh, you know, because... People know who you are for the most part, and if they don't, too bad. We're going to focus instead on each of you offering copious and sincere praise for me. Let's begin with Erica Miners. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. I'm happy to offer that. Enough with the with the niceties. Let's jump in. Um, I'm going to basically invite all the participants to jump in as you would like, because I really want this to be a free flowing and an informal conversation um, that we can have. You know, just kind of like I don't know in the pre COVID times when we could like actually go to a restaurant and you know eat food and talk and share our thoughts and ideas. So um, you'll be invited in and I hope you all can take time and kind of sit down, relax, be in a good space and join us for this conversation. Um, So I wanted to start off because you talk in the book about the how of how the book came to be. And I think it's worth beginning there because I think the how, the way that you worked to create the book, has something to teach us about feminism and also about abolition. So who might want to kick us off um, by just talking a little bit about the how of how the book came to be? 
I'll I'll say something. Um, Thanks, Beth. Well, first, thank you, Miriam. I mean, we could not imagine anyone that we would rather uh, steer us through this conversation. Your work has uh, inspired me. I know it's inspired us. It's certainly inspired abolition feminism now. And you just continue to amaze with your brilliance and your commitment and your humor. So thank you, Miriam, for for leading us forward. It's uh, really delightful to be here. I don't think I ever imagined that this book would um, appear and that there ever would be a launch, but here we are. So um, thanks everyone for coming. I remember uh, two things. I remember driving home from Stateville Prison where Erica and I uh, were teaching courses. And um, we realized that all of the other teachers, um, we're, we're teachers, but we're also learners from our students at Stateville, um, were feminists. And our students were uh, emerging feminists. Some were already were feminists. And I remember us talking, Erica, about what it means to be feminists teaching in an institution where the state identifies the people there as men. Um, and I also remember continuing that conversation, I think over some drinks at a restaurant, perhaps, um, and thinking we should try to write through what we are thinking about, what we're feeling, what we're experiencing um, about being feminists, engage in the process of abolition and trying to make sure that abolition is far, part of our feminist praxis. I remember that specifically. And then, of course, who would you want to write that book with? but Angela Davis and Gina Dent. Um, And in fact, Angela and Gina, Eric and I had this conversation, I say on the peripheral of conference rooms, we would be on a panel and we'd sort of gather afterwards and say, so what about that feminist discussion as abolitionists? Or we'd be at a abolition conference and say, where was the feminism in that abolition discussion, right? And so from those informal spaces, which were informal, but deeply important, politically and personally, we got together and said, let's put our ideas on paper. Let's try to bring our experience to the page. Let's try to have discussions that would generate something that could be between two covers and could represent not only what we were worried about and thinking about, but we what we had learned from other people. My memory of, of at least how we got started. Somebody can pick it up from there. Erica, you go next. <laughs> Oh, we're going to volunteer people um, to get, hopefully not to get voted off. Um, I just a joy to be here. I'm just honored to be sharing the same tile space with um, valued comrades. And thank you, Miriam, for, for shepherding us today. And thank you to the interpreters and Haymarket and all the folks who um, supported our technological um, emergence today. So thank you. Um, I, I don't have much to add to Beth's wonderful um, um, kind of vivid snapshot. I do remember those um, car rides to and from Stateville Prison and really thinking about the practice, what it meant to do um, abolitionist work as a feminist and how to make that feminist lens and that feminist intent more visible. Um, I think I'll, I'll approach the second part of your question, why it, you know, why it was important to to sort of do it collaboratively or to do it collectively, uh, Miriam, I think that that was sort of also part of your question. And I think it, it, it felt for all of us and all the multiple ways that our trajectories have overlapped or not overlapped in the last decades or, or multiple decades. And in some cases, um, it, re- it felt really important to do 
do this project collectively, to do this project collaboratively, in part because the work we were trying to surface, honor, recognize, amplify, is all sort of collaborative and collective work. So it felt that any project that attempted the audaciousness of documenting or honoring or amplifying abolition feminism also had to be by, you know, uh, also had to be a collaborative or a collective endeavor. So I think that that was important, sort of important to to my trajectory, and I'll uh, maybe just this once in this entire call speak for all of us, all of our trajectories to 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 honor that um, in the both in the writing, in the process of writing, and also um, um, in the the work that we were trying to um, to document. So I'll just add that as a footnote. Okay, and um, Erica, do you remember um, the? Evening we spent on your colleague's back porch. Yes. We were yes, drinking there was no wine. air conditioning. I was trying to find somewhere that had air conditioning. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. It was so hot in Chicago. Yeah. yeah. And you raised the idea with me of um, writing um, a book on abolition feminism that would be co-authored by the four of us. Uh, and um and then, and I, I brought the project to Gina, uh, and interestingly, she and I, uh, some years prior, had been on a panel uh, organized, I think, by Avery Gordon, or Avery was the moderator of the panel at a conference uh, that took place uh, before Cedric Robinson died, uh, uh, and it was a tribute uh, to um, Cedric, uh, uh, Ruthie was there, Robin was there, uh, and the, the theme of the panel was abolition feminism. Do you remember that, Gina? I do. I, I do. I remember that and, and several other times, but I, you know, I think we could talk about so many origins for this book and, and therefore we really thought, um, that it would be so easy for us to sit down and do this quickly. <laughs> um, I just want to say speaking <laughs> for the first time, I'll just say I want to I want to um, double uh, down on the thank yous uh, for everyone getting us on this call and appreciation to the press, Haymarket, to um, all of the people who are um, interpreting and everyone uh, working for us now, and um, and especially to Mariam for for provoking us. Um, but I I. I think it's also important to say that we really thought we understood what we were going to do. We had a meeting at Beth's. We had our first real meeting, sitting down to, to work on the book just before COVID. And we said, oh, you know, three months, we'll, we'll try to do this. And it wasn't that we don't know a lot about these issues, but we knew those issues exactly the way Beth described as oh, we were always at the edges of other conversations. And so our points always came as second points, third points, tenth points, you know, but trying to figure out how the book could begin at, on page one and could really introduce the whole framework to everyone and how to do that in a way that represented all of our thinking um, was really an incredible experience. And I feel like I learned so much from the process, from the process of working together, which turned out to be not as we planned in person, but on Zoom instead, weekly for over a year or two or something. Um, and 
So I think that that was important. And also realizing how, even though we could answer these questions when they came up on panels and in other places, to really elaborate the answers required our checking in with our colleagues, support from other people, trying to remember all the organizations that we'd uh, for known about and forgotten, even ones we'd been a part of and, and forgotten, and so many other things. And so um, I have to say that it was an incredible joy to do this. And as Mariam, uh, you know, prodded us in the beginning to, to think about, it really taught me a lot about abolition feminism in terms of always knowing, you know, when I was having a bad day, bad week, bad month, whatever it was, there was always someone there picking, picking something up. There was always someone to cheer me on. There was always a way for us to um, support each other. And I think that really became the framework that allowed us to delve deeper into this and to um, really think about how to display this work for others. And, and let me just add that uh, there were there there was a time when I really doubted that we would uh, be able to achieve uh, a unified voice uh, because we're all very different. Uh, uh, our training is different. Our writing styles are different. Uh, and um, when we first contributed our individual um, ideas, uh, they were they were all so entirely different that it appeared to me that we would uh, either have to decide to do something that was co-authored by us each individually, uh, or we would have to give up the project. Uh, uh, and. And, and, and there were moments uh, when it really did not seem possible. Uh, uh, but, um, and, and, and this is uh, uh, what I think we mean when we say that the process uh, um, recapitulated, uh, you know, the, the, the um, ideas we want to offer about abolition feminism. There was a, 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 a and, and this was thanks to the fact that we had four people, that it was a collaboration. Uh, uh, and there was always somebody to, to pick up the ball, uh, regardless uh, of how difficult it might have appeared uh, for each of us at certain points. Uh, and, and so I think that um, I learned more from writing this book than uh, from any other publication that I've done. Uh, uh, and, it, and, it, and it wasn't so much about the research, it was about um, you know, how we work together, how we achieve community, how we meld uh, 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 differences, how we work through differences, how we allow difference to be the very glue uh, that brings the community uh, together. I love that. Um, I think so, so beautifully put and also just so instructive about what it takes to organize together, um, what it takes to be in coalition and to be also in community with other people. So thank you for those those thoughts. I want to um, just follow up by 
you know, kind of, I think the logical next step for me in, as I was reading um, this book a couple of times, I was thinking about the fact that I've been working with others for the past few years on creating a transformative justice timeline. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's to, you know, kind of get a lot of ideas from different people who've been involved at different points in time um, and also in different kinds of ways to create this, you know, timeline that we could share with other people that other people could contribute to. And I found it really interesting to gather so many ideas from so many people because there are so many genealogies, and you mentioned this in the book, and also origin stories. And I wonder if each of you might share a specific event or a campaign or a project or a book that you might include on an abolition feminism timeline. Um, there are just so many such events and campaigns and projects uh, represented in the book. And I think to get the, the, the gist of my question is really to attempt to get at why genealogies matter. Um, and so if you would all maybe, you know, be willing to just pick one event, one campaign, one project, one book to include on this abolition feminism timeline, I would love to hear from you about that. I would, um, I would name the CR insight statement, mm -hmm. um, you know, sort of the obvious answer from me, but, um, you know, in writing about the CR insight statement, and hearing Erica and Gina and Angela uh, talk about, but also co-write about the CR Critical Resistance Insight Statement, which is in many ways where the book begins, mm -hmm. um, it, it made me, kind of allowed me to relive the moment of uh, passion, joy, um, anger, frustration of trying to say, how are we going to reconcile an abolition movement that has not fully integrated a feminist analysis. And what am I going to do as an anti-violence activist where people are arguing for carceral solutions against the abolition movement that I was also a part of? And, and the statement, just like this book in some ways, you know, it stands in and of itself, but it was really the process of writing it and then uh, putting it on a poster and then talking about it at conferences and arguing with my comrades about it years and years and years later. Um, and then having it appear uh, in a different form in some ways in the moment of truth statement. I know we were only supposed to say one, Miriam, but I thought I could. <laughs> How'd you like that one? I, you know, I'm surprised you're all paying any attention to me whatsoever. Well, thank you. <laughs> I'm going to follow what you say. You're, you are in charge. Um, but I think, again, the, the way that the, the moment of truth statement, which is also talked about in the book, a moment of, of reconciling and calling, calling your movement to account, if you will, for the work that it's doing or not doing, feels to me like... Um, both critical abolition feminism moments. One more historical, but it's still alive. And the other one feels more like in the now moment. Um, and I'm grateful for all of the people who taught me, led me, argued with me, and were part of, of the creation of, of those two bodies of work. Awesome. 
Next person, jump in, please. Okay, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, this is this is a very hard question, uh, Mariam. I, I, um, so I think what I'm going to do is to point to um, uh, the handbook uh, that was published in, um, I, I can't remember the date, I think it was 1976, uh, called Instead of Prisons, uh, and to the fact that one of the key participants, that was also produced, incidentally, by a collective uh, uh, and to point to the fact that one of the key participants in that collective uh, that compiled and, and wrote that handbook, which was uh, republished by Critical Resistance uh, in the early 2000s, um, I think. I don't have the date at hand, uh, but I'm referring to Faye Honey Knopp. Faye Honey Knopp, who also uh, wrote an article um, entitled uh, Radical Feminism and Abolition, mm -hmm. uh, uh, in which she began to argue uh, that if we did not address the issue of, of, of personal violence, gender violence, uh, 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 sexual violence, uh, that it would never be possible to imagine a world without prisons. Uh, and, and, and I think for me, that was the, the earliest uh, uh, clear statement about the relationship between, the necessary relationship between abolition and feminism. Go for it, Erica. Oh, I was like, you know, I made so many notes for this because, you know, I was like, oh, I got to be on point. And I'm like, now there's like so many great um, suggestions I want to offer for that timeline um, and how to follow those f fabulous and brilliant examples. I was thinking, of course, very just locally, I'm thinking about Chicago a lot today. And, um, you know, I would offer, you know, in, in terms of sort of lo local work, I'm, I'm based here in Chicago. Um, both, and I'll squeeze in two moments, um, not unlike Beth's uh, Beth's strategy. One is YWEP, Young Women's Empowerment Project. Um, we talk about it a, um, a little bit in the um, in the book project, but the establishment, and you know that um, network um, well, Miriam, longtime supporter and connector to it. Um, uh, as a as a as a group that um, young uh, street involved um, uh, young folks in the sex economy who are developing methods of harm reduction, um, working um, to produce research, organizing. Um, so I think that would definitely be on my timeline. And then I'll just jump ahead to, of course, another network that. Um, uh, Beth and uh, Miriam um, know well the No Cop Academy campaign, um, as a, as also young folks um, working to push back and reject um, the proposed ninety five million dollar police academy. Um, and neither one of those networks was sort of large or flashy or had money or even you know a ton of paid staff, for example. But I flag those as they really offered you know concrete practices. 
of you know how to how to um, invest in community, how to support one another, how to build mutual aid or harm reduction practices. So I would put those on the timeline for transformative justice in part because they're sort of small networks that um, maybe didn't have an enormous win, but um, um, but really changed language, um, produced brilliant political education materials, and really helped um, sort of shift shift the culture um, to where to the to the moment that we're in 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 now in the now. So, Gina, I think you're up. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, like you, so many come to mind. Um, but I think for the purposes of emphasizing something that was really important to us, I'll just name two international examples. Um, that both of them are close to us. Um, One is Sisters Inside in Brisbane, Australia, um, which has been um, running since the, that would be the early 2000s, I believe. And um, Sisters Inside is an organization that was started by Debbie Kilroy, who served a large amount of time, and uh, Ann Warner, uh, Debbie Kilroy became a barrister, has, is um, someone who um, became an attorney in, um, in Australia after filing a lawsuit to become the first person who had been criminally convicted uh, to serve. And um, they run an organization that has done both service work and service provision, but then became abolitionist. And I think as they really grew into abolition, really are, serve as a model for transformative justice. They work uh, often um, with indigenous communities and uh, lots of indigenous partners and are very attentive to those issues at the center of their organizing and as their, of their work. And I could go on and on and talk about them, but I'll mention one more, um, which I think may be less well-known, and that's Sisters Uncut in the UK, um, which... I think started in um, around 2014, if I'm not mistaken. And um, the reference to uncut, which at first I couldn't really understand what that meant. Um, I thought it was an anti-FGM organization or something, but actually it's about um, state cuts. It's about cuts to social services, it's about um, government austerity. And it's really an organization that um, sought to think about a transformative justice approach um, in the UK, and their work is deeply abolitionist and very much um, informed a lot of the ways we think about things. Um, and we could go on and on. I, I'm I'm eager to also talk about Du Bois and why we thought Black Reconstruction was important for the text, but I, I think I'll let Mariam have another question. <laughs> Thank you for thank you, Gina. That was really not at least that was not suave at all. Like you know, like I want to talk about this. Yes, I will come to Du Bois. I promise. <laughs> if you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Angela Davis: An Autobiography, featuring a substantial new introduction by the author, Angela Davis: An Autobiography is a classic account of a life in struggle. Angela Davis has been a political activist at the cutting edge of the Black liberation, feminist, queer, and prison abolitionist movements for more than 50 years. First published and edited by Toni Morrison in 1974, Angela Davis and Autobiography is a powerful and commanding account 
of her early years of political activity. With warmth, brilliance, humor, and conviction, Davis describes her journey from a childhood on Dynamite Hill in Birmingham, Alabama, to one of the most significant political trials of the century. From her political activity in a New York high school, to her work with the U.S. Communist Party, the Black Panther Party, and the Soledad Brothers, and from the faculty of the philosophy department at UCLA to the FBI's list of the 10 most wanted fugitives. Find Angela Davis, an autobiography, at haymarketbooks.org. A point, though, that uh, that Erica mentioned, because I think it, it's germane here, um, which is this notion of kind of why in the book focus on small networks and failures? Um, kind of what does this help us to see or to do or to know? And clicking, you know, connecting that to the point that you all make uh, briefly about abolition feminism as a method. Um, like, what does it mean to say that abolition feminism is a method? And what does it mean to highlight things that are seen as small networks, and in some cases, how to uplift failures. What does that have to do with abolition feminism? So if anybody wants to jump in on that, I'd love to hear it. And we will come to Du Bois right after that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seems like it's actually um, inviting us to think a little bit about this. I think you might have thrown it to Erica, which I'm I'm happy to let you let no, you well, no, please do not go. <laughs> Start us off, Nina. Yeah. Start us off. Um, but I, I think part of it is the challenge for us when we were talking, and 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 the reason I, I was thinking about Du Bois as well is because we were talking about what happens um, in terms of history and how often histories get written um, that make certain kinds of exclusions. Uh, those of us who've been engaged with Black feminism for a long time, which includes all of us, are very aware of the practices of Black feminists to try and rescue both uh, our current work, but also the work uh, that has been done historically. And we were really noticing the many ways that abolition was starting to have a history in the present. And yet that history was disappearing. The very things that we felt were most crucial to it being developed in a strong way. Mm-hmm. So if we knew, for example, those of us who were involved in critical resistance, you know, that most of the organizing committee was, um, you know, women identified folks, we had trans folks, we had, you know, other people operating from feminist paradigms, and that feminism was very much at the heart of conversations, even when CR is telling its own story. How much is that appearing? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, that could just be considered a question of attribution or, you know, historical correctness, but rather I think it's a, it's an issue of how we then think about what the strategies are that made these movements successful. You know, what are the elements that drop out as these issues are mainstreamed? And how can we avoid um, those issues? And so we wanted there to be some kind of a document, and we knew it would be a living document that people would continue to revise and rethink, and that would never be a perfect document. But we wanted it to register the problem of those omissions 
and to let people understand that the abolition work that we considered to be most successful and most important was always that feminist work. And that that work was was sometimes the work that did appear to have not succeeded, that did appear to, to you know, that it disappeared, that that also seemed to um, not necessarily get the credit, you know, name recognition or other things. And so uh, the book is really about that. And it's about letting other people know who are doing that work, that the work they do matters and that our practice, our method of abolition feminism is to try to also attend to that, to live in those multiple times in which this abolition feminist future is being created and to try and allow other people to see that so that the work cannot be narrowed in dangerous ways. And and I also um, think that we were um, uh, very conscious of the uh, ways in which um, uh, women and uh, um, gender nonconforming um, people have been historically marginalized in struggles uh, against uh, uh, carceral institutions, uh, prisons, the police. for so long, uh, the assumption, the, the 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 general assumption, was that police violence was a a, a, a male issue because um, the the vast majority of people who are targets of racist police violence are men. Uh, the same thing with respect to. Uh, what we now call mass incarceration, uh, uh, the the phenomenon of the prison industrial complex. The vast majority of people behind bars uh, are, 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 are men. And so, um, you know, how do we, um, how do we challenge this tendency to assume that um, issues of quantity can determine uh, uh, the, the nature of a, a phenomenon. Feminism has always, I think, challenged uh, those terms. Uh, and, and, and we recognized early on that by looking, and you know, Beth uh, uh, has written about this, and, 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 and all of us uh, have experienced this, by looking very specifically at women and gen- gender nonconforming people behind bars, we get a very different vision of the nature of the institution as a whole, of what constitutes uh, the the prison industrial complex. So, uh, uh, Mariam, when you talk about the the methodological dimension, I I, I think that that, um, our sense of the uh, importance of feminism resides uh, to a great extent uh, in its methodology, uh, um, not only in its attention to gender, but its attention uh, to ways of uh, con- uh, uh, conceiving the world um, that challenge the assumption that you know quantity equals quality, that challenge uh, the uh, uh, assumption uh, that um, uh, um, um, Difference cannot uh, 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 produce unity. Uh, 
uh, you know, what we often refer to as intersectionality. How can we uh, bring things together that are not uh, usually a thought of within the same framework? Uh, so I think all of this was really helpful uh, for us, uh, uh, Miriam, as we uh, looked at the whole process of, uh, of putting this book together. Uh, how can we draw upon those insights that challenge Western logic often and that challenge prevailing um, prevailing ideologies. Miriam, can I add, add one quick thing that, um, you know, when Angela was talking about challenging even definitions of things, I mean, you know, we, things get sort of called failures um, and we sort of close the book on them. We don't return to the lessons that we learned. We never know where the people end up. But in fact, you know, one thing that I've learned from years and years and years of anti-violence work is what looks like it's not working now mm. uh, can teach us something about what needs to work next time around, right? And that's yeah. that's an abolition feminist understanding of, of gender violence. And someone very smart Miriam Cobbett. <laughs> it's a discipline. <laughs> heard that one? It's a discipline. I think, uh, yeah, I think you said that, right? <laughs> I have a little uh, notebook to prove that. You <laughs> and I think what, what that says to me is such a strong abolition feminism statement is that it may not work out this time. And our job is to try to figure out why and to try again and again and again and again. And we need to do that to free criminalized survivors again and again and again. We need to close uh, cop academies over and over again. We didn't do that one, but there's going to be another one we can guarantee, right? We need to help people in crisis move through that crisis the best way we can. And sometimes it doesn't work out like we thought it was going to. The point here, obviously, I hope, is that abolition feminism is, of course, about the big campaigns, but it's also about the everyday acts of resistance that keep us safe, that try to bring people joy, that encourage people to try again, to say, we, we're going to stand with you while you try again. It's about mutual aid. And I think if we only look at the sort of measurable big success, or as Angela was saying, the largest demographic or the uh, most celebrated accomplishments or the people who have the most social capital, and that's all we listen to. If that's all we do, we will miss what really is the change that's happening in this country. And that has been happening for a while, back to Du Bois, right? This didn't just start, right? Um, and so hope is a discipline. We have to learn how to hope and try again and hold each other accountable for what we didn't do well. But, you know, we get another chance. And what exists now isn't what we want. We still are building the world that we want. That's the, that's our abolition feminism work to do right now. So 
Oh, that is so beautiful, Beth. Um, I mean, I'm thinking about all the work unfolding in Chicago, Miriam, that you were shepherding, curating, um, you know, creating spaces for for decades that really made the demand of No Cop Academy possible, the community. I mean, just hearing Beth talk about the practices, the political education materials, um, the direct action, the campaigns, all of those tiny projects, which, um, you know, often, you know, are, you know, I, I'm sure maybe in in boxes in Beth's basement or, you know, <laughs> in my closet, you know, and, and, and Chicago is just one example. We focus on Chicago in the book, book, in part because we wanted to have a groundedness to kind of illustrate this ecology. But, you know, one, we didn't capture everything in Chicago. There's so much alive unfolding here. And also, I mean, what's happening in Chicago is also happening in Johannesburg, is also happening in Brisbane, is also happening in Montreal. So it could be any any of these places that have these kinds of um, different kinds of ecologies moving up. But you know the the no cop academy campaign you know had you know uh, you know had a 100 folks sign on 100 100 plus folks sign on to shrinking the police force right so that network of largely young people created political education materials got other social justice organizations to sign on to a campaign arguing that we should you know sort of shrink our our investment in policing so incredible horizontal political education work that in our book is a huge success right of course we we don't want that new 95 million dollar police academy but as importantly we want to build strong and sustainable cultures that are you know that have the analysis and that are sharing tools and building you know stronger and safer communities along the way. So I think I think the project is also recognizing and abolition feminism is also recognizing this sort of tension and value of the both and the, the, you know this this it's a tension right we want you know we're we're working for uh you know to keep someone alive in this moment we're working to you know defeat the a proposed new jail but at the same time we're also trying to shift languages to shift um you know investments to build you know stronger and safer communities on the way and i think it's risky messy work as 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 we know but this this sort of both and work I think is a uh, uh, is how we came to think about and um, frame abolition feminism and again just echoing um, uh, previous folks' brilliance I mean it's not new right there's a long long genealogy of this which you know we felt was important to at least gesture to maybe this is the setup for the web. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We're going to do that. We're going to talk about Du Bois and um, the fact that you all, you know, pretty early on uh, root us in um, Du Du Boisian abolition democracy as an idea and that that is, you know, so critical to this book and really to PIC abolition in general. Um, I would love to hear people's thoughts on that. And then I would like you to also uh, I wanted to pick up on Gina's, um, you know, uh, kind of point made about genealogies and uh, Gina rooted genealogies in the international uh, sphere. And a big part of this book is also saying we have to look internationally. It's abolition feminism now worldwide, right? Like it's it's not just abolition feminism now in the U.S. So if we can, you know, I'm going to throw to Gina on on um, on Du Bois and, and Black Reconstruction and all the work. And then also would love for all of you to also comment on the internationalism that is at the center of this book. Sure. Well, um, 
I think we spent a good amount of time, and not all of this actually made it into the book, discussing how we understood Du Bois's contribution, specifically in Black Reconstruction, as feminist. And it really was about unthinking the idea, and I say this as someone who teaches, for example, in a feminist studies department, you know, unthinking the idea that those things that are feminist are those things that are labeled feminist or those things that women identified folks do. So um, I, I think the importance for us was partly in thinking about this um, kind of leapfrogging time. In other words, Du Bois writing and publishing in the 30s, a very, very important period in which the inside the United States were reconceptualizing uh, what was going on post the crash, but also thinking about the global organizing that was going on at that time. Du Bois's emerging into uh, communist uh, work and starting to think about capitalism in a deep, deeper way. And the way that that really mirrored our time in terms of coming after Occupy, coming after, um, of course, what started to unfold during the time we were writing, all of the um, or the uprisings and, and protests around um, police killings and also other um, forms of, of death. And so it was really our wanting to get a sense that it's important to rewrite these histories. Historiography is not just a a subject matter for those who are professional historians, but really that it matters how we re-narrate um, these times and that we do it in the grammar of the contemporary. So we do it in in the within the frame of understanding that is our contemporary moment. So just as Du Bois was able to do that for Black Reconstruction, using the, the moment of the 30s to reshape how we would understand the latter part of the 20th century, sorry, 19th century. Um, it's really important for us in the 21st century to be also looking back and to be um, thinking about this. And we conceptualize this relationship to history as also being informed by a feminism, not a feminism that everyone would share. That's one of the important themes of the book is that many people use the term feminism in ways that uh, really doesn't correspond with how we think of feminist work. And also that there are many things that we've uh, embraced in the book that don't come under the label of feminism that we believe belong there. And we tried to show the ways in which there were correspondences between those things. It was also part of the way that we were embracing many things that um, uh, many groups and many um, types of work that don't agree on everything. Um, and that it was important for us to be open about what was labeled abolition feminism, not to be policing of that boundary of what gets in and what gets out, because we feel that the impulses that people were um, being motivated by and the, the questions they were addressing and the ways they were working made sense to us as abolition feminist projects. And so in that way, Du Bois was both a guiding um, uh, life for us. And of course, the issue of abolition and democracy, I'm sure others will, will elaborate on soon. But I think it was also about being able to think about time in this way, being able to think about what it means to live in the time of abolition and the time of doing service work or even reform work 
that is the necessary work to to improve conditions for those who are currently suffering, but all the while paying attention to um, the longer view and to thinking the future. And it's that that really um, we felt was undergirding our sense of abolition feminism. And well, I guess I'll uh, um, um, try also to make the point that um, Du Bois um, um, urges um, a different kind of lens uh, 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 to shift from a myopic examination of a, one particular institution to looking at the society as a whole. Uh, and of course, his major argument was that slavery could not be abolished simply by focusing only on the institution of slavery and pronouncing it over, uh, that the entire society uh, had to be um, uh, reimagined and, 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 and reorganized, uh, new institutions. Uh, uh, and, 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 and that is, uh, I, I think, the um, sense of abolition uh, that has been adopted uh, by uh, those who refer to themselves as uh, prison abolitionists or police abolitionists. We can't simply get rid of this terribly violent institution we call the prison or this institution we call the police. We have to figure out how to produce a um, society that no longer uh, needs such institutions. Um, and. And, and, and that, that uh, uh, broadening of the lens, uh, uh, which, which is also a feminist gesture, uh, uh, that, that we, we cannot simply look at uh, 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 issues of gender and leave everything else intact, uh, forgetting that uh, 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 heteropatriarchy has been produced by uh, racial capitalism uh, and 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 vice versa. So I I, I think that that um, uh, was well. I, I, Erica suggested that we include uh, in the book early on a quote uh, from the critical race theorist uh, Mari Matsuda, uh, which is so wonderful. Uh, it's all, it's about always asking the other question, uh, uh, so that if something is racist. Uh, where is the heteropatriarchy in this? Uh, if something uh, is is homophobic, where are the class interests in this? Uh, and I think uh, uh, you know what what we what we try to do by reaching out and 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 not only looking at the U.S. but looking at the world is to uh, understand the interconnectedness and the interrelatedness. Uh, all of the 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 the, the you know, what you might call intersectionalities uh, that are necessary if, if we are to um, eventually um, imagine and hope uh, for, uh, and, and, and thank you so much again, Miriam, for this notion that hope has to be generated. It has to be produced. Uh, uh, it is a discipline. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> yes, I, I love that. Maybe just to I'll add a quick line about internationalism. Um, 
just that following the Marie Matsuda point about um, asking the other question, I think internationalism helps, it certainly helps me to be able to uh, question, um, look, um, think through in a different way what passes for normal and right and good in my own particular location. So I've had the privilege of um, growing up in a different nation state and also uh, um, traveling and being connected to projects outside of U.S. nation state borders. And in all of those um all of those opportunities have really, you know, one, you know, reminded me about the insularity of United States thinking and practice often, you know, um, and have also just given me brilliant um, examples of communities that are, you know, making a way out of no way, you know, uh, engaging that both and work, um, supporting people, um, supporting themselves, surviving, flourishing at the same time as working to challenge structures. So, um, and I think that those are often, you know, tiny networks, amazing networks, the radical group of, you know, feminists in Berlin that were translating you know, you know, the creative interventions manual, um, you know, um, or the wonderful, you know, uh, group of, um, in um, in London that um, took me uh, bent bars to see a queer group inside a, a prison for people the state considers men um, in um, just outside of London. So those tiny networks are supporting people inside are, you know, making different kinds of demands. And I think it felt imperative to us as a methodology and, and I think, you know, Gina says this really beautifully. I can't remember the phrase, but like to try to to make sure that that was included in this project, but not in a way that was tokenizing. And I think it's it's hard to have a small book that represents, you know, um, so many organizations and um, um, campaigns and projects. Um, so it's hard to sort of, you know, have that um, have that. So uh, we, we only included some. Um, but I just wanted to flag that for us, internationalism seems central because, you know, we've learned from it. It, shape, it shapes the landscape. And I think particular for um, for for us who are located in the U.S. nation state to to, to recognize those networks are, are central and vibrant. Um, and if anything, you know, I'm looking, I'm excited for the next project. There's a great um, small press out of the UK that just did this. Um, I'll remember it at some point in this conversation and share it. Um, did a wonderful kind of abolitionist um, 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 a tiny book project that just came out. So there's all kinds of you know exciting stuff emerging now, abolitionist feminist work. So. Thank you so much um, to all of you. So I just want to give us a time check that we have about 15 more minutes uh, for our agreed upon ending. And I do have a few more questions, but I will, I think I'll just try to focus us on two because I think that they um, will bring out, you know, a lot of the things that I think we could talk about in however ways, you know, you can take it wherever you want to go is what I'm saying. Um, so the first is I love, love, love about this small book that there's so much art and cultural work here represented. Um, there is so much kind of visual arts and, you know, there are these great charts that people have made in terms of political education materials that you made sure to include. And I'm not going to ask you, like, just like, why did you do that? Meow, meow, right? Like, I'm going to uh, let you speak on it. But before I want to do that, I want to just say this quote um, from uh, Erica, our mutual 
comrade friend uh, Amisha Patel, longtime Chicago-based organizer, um, who did wrote this, you know, said this a year, years ago, and I've held on to these words. She says many of us feel like we have to negotiate an unworkable system. Art making things is about unlocking what we can create, not just managing an unworkable system. Our creative power is at the center of our organizing for justice and liberation. Hope is creative. Creative is hope. And I just love this. You know, I think it's just so on point. And I also think I know that um, Gina is like really like spearheading, you know, visualizing abolition as a project. I know that, you know, I saw a video um, conversation, Angela, that you were part of with Gina about that project. And I know that will be expanding. So I'm just going to open it up. Art, what do you think? (laughs) (laughs) Art and abolition and feminism. What do y'all think? (laughs) And then we'll end with one question at the end. (laughs) I'll just, you know, as a, um, I also love that uh, others among us, it wasn't me who thought to include so much uh, visual art and cultural representations in the book. But to me, it is one of the uh, one of the things I like most about it. And part of that is because going back to the question of like both what is sustainable um, you know, and, and the campaigns aren't always sustainable. The relationships don't always last. But when we were able to uncover the symbols, the the artifacts of the work, it felt to me like it came alive, like the words came alive. And the pictures of people, the diagrams, some of them hand-drawn, the choice of words that, you know, are show up in a diagram, you know, from 15, 20 years ago, all of that felt to me like it, it was a particular kind of genealogy that, first of all, was accessible ways of people knowing what we were talking about or what they were talking about. It was a way that we spread um, the news beyond the words, um, and it lasted, mm. it lasted, and as we were writing this book during a pandemic, I, at different points, would put different of images that we had decided to include in the book on the bulletin board that I was facing when I was Zooming or writing or um, whatever else I spent those two years doing. <laughs> feel like there were these things that I could hold on to that were about uh, lessons learned and encouragement about the future. And I felt like that... It, it was life-giving. And I think our culture gives a kind of life that words alone just never will. I'm so glad we were able, I'm grateful for all of the people who contributed the amazing work that we're able to show in the book and the things that, you know, will be shown in the next book, because there's a lot of it and it, it just gives, it gives us life. So thank you. Well, oh, go go ahead, Erica. No, no, no. Go ahead. I had one last thing about this. I and I, I think also that so much of what life is like for people inside is creative work in resistance to the life that is being taken away from them every day that they wake up inside a jail or prison or detention center. And so the resistance dimension of it is, I think, also important to lift up. 
Well, I was going to, um, oh, thank you, uh, Beth. I was going to try to connect uh, the um, artwork we include in the text uh, um, as um, what would ordinarily be considered ephemera of the movement. Uh, you know, those things that get produced within the moment, uh, uh, but that are uh, left to be um, uh, forgotten, uh, you know, as a relic of the past. Uh, and in, in a sense, it, it, it kind of um, captures uh, uh, one aspect of the methodology we were trying to use in producing uh, this book, what are, are those, um, you know, elements, those ideas, those images, that music uh, from uh, the past uh, uh, that we may no longer remember uh, now, but that played such an important role in creating a tradition uh, uh, that has uh, made it possible uh, for us to to um, uh, do abolition feminist work. Uh, uh, and, and I think that question links very much with uh, the one uh, that you ask about failures, uh, you know, the things that uh, kind of fall away, uh, but nevertheless leave a mark uh, that we don't necessarily acknowledge. Uh, and, 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 and I think that um, uh, this collection of images, uh, and uh, th I think, uh, you know, I think Erica did. <laughs> oh, Erica is, is our archivist, <laughs> you know, retrieved all of these wonderful gifts that now we can uh, create um, in, in a kind of permanent uh, way. Um, if if the book travels, as we hope it will, uh, not because we are the authors, but because we think it is it is impo uh, important to preserve uh, these elements that have have actually given rise to something new, and and this moment that we are living. Um, the, the moment that is often characterized as the aftermath of the lynching of George Floyd and the police murder of Breonna Taylor, uh, this uh, 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 collective uh, uh, examination of the nature of structural uh, racism and the violence that is central to it, uh, this, this is a moment that was produced uh, by, you know, all of these uh, um, uh, past uh, images and thoughts and moments of organizing. Uh, um, and so it's, it's just very exciting uh, to, uh, be, to be able to participate in a moment that was so clearly uh, produced by all of these small things. Uh. Gina, do you want to jump in? I was going to, but Erica had something to say before, and I wanted to oh, hear it. Erica, please go. 
I was just the sort of the affective register that these images, the music, all that Angela and Beth were just outlining. I think as you know, texts can change the world. My life is always changed by texts, many written by the people on this call. <laughs> um, but I think also music, uh, visuals um, you know, are really just incredibly powerful tools, pedagogical tools, political tools. And I think it was really important to at least gesture to that in this project, because that is often what stays with you. I mean, the phrase might stay with you, but the image and the visual or the music are also just such powerful tools to propel change, cultural lasting change. And again, that point that Angela is making about failure and success, I mean, that maybe maybe even you know, more powerful, the poets might disagree with me, but um, you know, the, the music or the affective regime is also you know, really central. In, uh, and I think that that's one thing that our grassroots social movements you know, have, have and continue to do exceptionally well, create this sense of other, otherness of, 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 of value of, of, a, of a kind of belonging, right? That's really important. And safety, different, different ideas about safety, sorry. Mm-hmm. No, I'm um, I'm so glad to hear it. And these three all know that I could go on and on about this. So I don't want to, but I do want to say um, thank you, Mariam, for for mentioning visualizing abolition, which is a project I'm doing at UC Santa Cruz with Rachel Nelson and others. And and it got started in a you know pandemic moment in a way. It was going to be a smaller scale thing that we were doing and. Um, we started doing these events online and and they're about arts and abolition uh, and specifically working with artists. And I think the thing about the book was that we were privileged in being able to share work that isn't really reflected in its true form. So we, it's black and white imagery of some things that were published in, in, that were printed in color and artists, you know, often, of course, the color and other aspects of the art, the scale and other things really matter about the works. And so in this case, we were lucky that people wanted to have this work documented in this way. And so it really is, as Angela pointed out, about the ephemera of the movement and making sure that we know about it and and pay attention to it for all the reasons that you all stated. But I also think it's been really important for me in the long time that I've been now engaged with abolition questions to really think about how we move from the anti-carceral perspective to the abolitionist perspective. And I have felt that working with visual culture has been a very important part of that. I've always argued that we need to pay attention to the popular culture that people are absorbing that is representing the prison as being a stable uh, part of our landscape and something that will exist in perpetuity as if it's always existed and have pointed out that from the era of early silent film that the that film was an important part of representing to us that the prison and policing as natural and so uh, there's a lot of work we have to do to move against that and that includes work in activist communities that are doing abolition work, where we sometimes also are fixed on, you know, representing everything with bars and thinking in very literal ways about things. And I think looking at art practice and the ways that people actually have to try and move away from what is stable now in the landscape towards something else that they envision is a really important part of the way we all need to be imagining. And, um, and now there are so many artists who are really dedicating their lives to 
helping us to have a different vision, have an abolitionist vision. And, and that's something a little bit different than just pointing out the evils of incarceration and, and, and what it's done in the world. And so I think the book tries to gesture toward that and allow people to see that and also to allow people to see the evolution of these kinds of texts. I think the visuals also help to do some other work subtextually that is important for us, like disrupting the the simple history that incarceration is a U.S. problem grounded in slavery and mass incarceration is the thing we're fighting and we're fighting it because it extends slavery against Black people in the main, which has been one of the most um, uh, fixed narratives that we have. And we were really in, in wanting to include, um, work that would show the effect on indigenous folks on, on, um, on sovereign questions of sovereignty on, um, all kinds of other folks of color and, and, um, queer and trans folks. And so the, the work that we were able to include is really representative also of saying there are all kinds of different people, kinds of people who are being affected um, by the PIC, the prison industrial complex, and they don't always get to appear in these kind of central narratives that we tell ourselves about um, the history of the prison. So the visual work isn't only illustration of what we say, it's also a support and analytical support to what we're doing. And hopefully it provides a different way into those questions. And I'm hoping that we can also continue to develop work in the arts that is um, not only thinking that we're just, you know, doing this work because we have, you know, if we're incarcerated, then we we have a certain kind of time um, and are trying to to fill it, but really because that practice um, is worthy of um, sharing with others, as we see with the work of um, Nicole Fleetwood with the Marketing Time exhibition, and as we're starting to see with other kinds of work. And so I really um, I'm glad we were able to do it, that people were so willing. But I also want us to really think more and more about, you know, what it is that we're we're trying to um, do when we're incorporating the visual, not merely to illustrate what we already know, but to allow us to uh, imagine differently. Beautifully put. Thank you so much, all of you. And thank you, Gina, for that great um, insight also that I will I will definitely be holding on to that, um, you know, art as analytic tool and moving us beyond the, the barriers or the borders of our thinking. So thank you so much for that. Um, we're going to end uh, with a question to just sum up and I'm going to let you kind of do what you want to do with the question because we've been on for a minute. It's flown by for me. I looked up and I was like, oh my God, it's flown by, but I would talk to you forever. But um, I know you all have lives or at least pretend to have them on TV. Um, but anyway, so we're going to do that. Um, let us let us talk a little bit about um, uh, two. I'm going to just offer two things that you can comment on. One is uh, if you want to say something about the political moment we're in, um, the backlash uh, that we're on, the backlash, frontlash, retrenchment, whatever term you want to use for what's going on and how that how this book fits into that or speaks to that, or can help us think through that. Um, or you can also just share maybe what you want to have happen because you've done this project. Um, you know, what would you like to see happen because the book now exists in the world? How do you want to see it traveled and used? Um, so I'll leave it there and anybody can close us out. 
Well, I, um, I'm very worried, Miriam, you know this, because I know you're as worried as I am, as are my uh, co-authors on the screen. I'm very worried about the um, rise and deep entrenchment of carceral feminism and the way that um, there is a almost unending investment in carceral solutions to gender-based violence that do not work. And uh, so I'm very worried about that dimension of backlash. Um, It's not new, but the volume has been turned up in ways that are very, um, very, very difficult, very dangerous. And what I hope the book will do is, you know, remind people that there's another way. We can do better by survivors of gender-based violence than continue to argue for carceral solutions. I hope it inspires activists and organizers and even convince those naysayers who don't believe us that abolition can bring freedom and justice and safety to people. That, that's what I hope the book will do. Um, and I hope that, you know, everyone who's listening uh, finds some project like this that brings them the kind of joy that this one brought me. And, you know, you don't get that a lot in our work and our organizing and our activism, but I got it here. And I'm so grateful for that. And I hope the book will travel to bring the liberatory possibility that, um, that we deserve and that we've been working for. So thank you all for today and beyond and before. I can go next and be short. Um, just yes to underscore Beth's, you know, super important point about um, hoping that this book can intervene in the expansion of carceral feminism in this moment. Um, we use the term um, in that we use a phrase in the project, you know, the necessity of this sort of always slow work in urgent times. And I am I'm also hoping that in this moment, um, people can see that the, you know, we're engaged, you know, the work is, you know, work for the long haul and the hiccup of the moment that we're in now when some mainstream outlets are so quick to, you know, say that the defund police movement is over, um, that people can, um, you know, be inspired and energized by the, you know, even just the snapshots that we offer in abolition feminism now of this sort of long genealogy of this beautiful struggle. And that, that there is this sort of ongoing, robust, um, always, um, always uh, sort of slow work and always urgent times. And, you know, Miriam, your um, political education work, your um, toolkits, your, you know, your vision is really um, just so, so, so imperative in that, in that, contributing to that, um, the necessity of that slow work in urgent times. And I would not be amiss if this is my last point, just to remind us to do a pitch, right? Always a good hustler, Erica. Just, I know if, um, if you are on the call or listening to this and you have a few extra dollars, you know, we flagged a couple of organizations, Critical Resistance, Love and Protect, uh, the Prison Neighborhood Arts and Education Project. One of the ways that these small groups keep going, right, is because of $5 or, or $20. So feel free to contribute um, to those organizations or to the many other um, abolitionist feminist organizations wherever you are located and learn from their incredible work um, um, and support their work. So I just wanted to flag that. I think that is, you know, I think in this, you know, um, again, another moment um, 
of uh, co-optation and retrenchment and 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 violence, trying to um, hang on to those um, the power of our our our, our shared work. Well, thank you, uh, Beth and Erica. And I, I just want to use this closing moment to um, to say something about what we've been calling abolitionist, uh, abolition feminist temporalities. Uh, uh, that um, uh, the work that we're doing now uh, has emerged from um, a past of many decades, even centuries, uh, and that we have to uh, avoid becoming so ensconced in the moment that we fail to recognize how that past work, this present work, can uh, lead us to a very different future. Uh, uh, no one would, would have predicted that we would be at, the, at, at this particular moment where abolition is being um, talked about in the mainstream. Uh, uh, you know, many of us who've been proponents of abolition forever, it seems, uh, uh, and, and for me it's been since the 1970s, I never imagined that there would come a time at least not in my lifetime, uh, where we would be having these conversations. I assume that it might happen, but maybe 50, 100 years in, in, into uh, the future. So let's, let's not be so short-sighted that when people uh, begin to try to uh, recover uh, uh, ground that was lost by uh, the in, in in the movements of these last uh, years, uh, by arguing that the homicide rate is up and 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 uh, we need more police here and so forth and so on. I mean, we 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 should be able to understand that that does not represent the direction of history. So let's also learn how to inhabit. An imagined future, uh, and 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 recognize that um, we have to keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Sometimes we have to do it a hundred times. Sometimes we have to say it a thousand times. Uh, but we are on the right side of history, and ultimately we will prevail. Indeed, I was actually hoping to give you the last word because uh, that was a beautiful. Um, line to end on. So um, without disrupting it, I'll just say that um, I also am very, very grateful for this conversation, for this group of authors, for Mariam's uh, support and, and humor. And I do think that this moment of uh, backlash, in particular around the phrase defund the police, is important for us to think about. And hopefully, the book will do will help to do the work of both explaining that that slogan is not simple, that all the complex thinking and working and planning and being that created that slogan. Um, I've seen it now represented very recently uh, on CNN. Van Jones was talking about, you know, someone who had started out early in his career doing Cop Watch, you know, talking about how the slogan was a problem. 
I think the slogan's only a problem if we allow the slogan to be thought about in a simple way. And this is why for us, a book and more books on issues such as abolition feminism are important because they really demonstrate all of the kinds of work that go into the everyday being in the spirit of abolition. And I think and hope um, that it will be more possible for people to continue to do this work to the extent that we share works like this and we allow people to see themselves and to see, as Angela was was already raising, the forms of temporality that we all need, need to be engaged in, that we can be leapfrogging times, that we don't have to think about an end to mass incarceration, which is like a corrective for inappropriate incarceration, and then go to you know better forms of incarceration for people who are truly guilty, and then move to see how, how devastating that is, that we can leapfrog those ostensible solutions and understand in advance how destructive those kinds of reformist strategies have been, and that this book will invite people to be simultaneously in the spirit of attending to all of those around us who need our support, and simultaneously to be engaged and inspired by the work that has, is going on, has always been going on, to imagine freedom. And so I want to thank everyone for, for watching and reading and for all of the communication we're getting in support of the book. And we know that so much of that comes from all of you who are doing this work every day. Thank you so, so, so much to everybody. Um, again, just echoing thanks to everybody who stuck with us for the last few minutes. If you're like me, I think you know that this conversation was so good. It was so rich. I'm so grateful. I'm also grateful that um, it seems like none of you were voted off the island. Congratulations. <laughs> Congratulations. You're still here. You weren't pulled off. The Sandman did not come and yank you off from your screens. Congratulations. Um, and I want to thank you particularly for this wonderful and most importantly for me, incredibly useful book. This is a book not just to be read, but a book to be read with others, a book to be used in your organizing. Pick up a copy if you haven't already. Pick up 10. Give them away to people you know. I really love being able to have books in hand because I'm obsessed with books. Some of you know I'm in library school. This suggests my love of books is real because why, why would I be doing that at 50 years old, going to class with a bunch of 20-year-olds to be my students? So you know I love books, and I'm here to tell you, buy this book. Also support the organizations that Erica mentioned, along with the millions. There's so many good organizations represented in the appendix of this book. Pick up the book, look at the organizations, support them in all ways that you can. Thank you to Haymarket for having us. Yes. We are out. Yes. Thank you all. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you, Miriam. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.